This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good morning, and welcome to the third of Rand's Call with the Experts Summer Series. I'm Jeff Hyde, Director of Media Relations at Rand. These calls are one of the many benefits of supporting Rand. Today, our topic is media coverage and the effects of celebrity suicides. Joining us are Rajiv Ramchand, a senior behavioral scientist at RAND. He's here with me in the Washington office. Good morning, Rajiv. Morning, Jeff. And we also have Sarah McCarthy, an associate policy analyst, joining us from Santa Monica. Good morning. And uh, Michelle Abbott, an assistant policy researcher and PhD candidate at the Party RAND Graduate School, calling in from our Pittsburgh office. Good morning. Morning, everyone. Let's begin. Rajiv, let me start with you. Suicide rates in the U.S. have increased pretty dramatically. Uh, across nearly every state, sex, race, age, demographic, since 1999. It, I think it's safe to say we're in a crisis. I'm curious to know to what extent are celebrity suicides, which we've had a few lately, are playing into this? Thanks, Jeff. Uh, it's a really great question. We do know that there is an element of suicide known as um, contagion or clustering. So when one suicide occurs, uh, it prompts copycat suicides. And we know that for celebrities, uh, that definitely happens and may happen more because of the widespread uh, knowledge of that person's suicide. We don't have recent data on the more recent suicides, but a study was just published looking at Robin Williams' suicide in 2014 that showed an excess of nearly 2,000 suicides to hanging um, than would be expected given typical seasonal variations in suicides and annual suicides. Over what period of time did these 2,000 excess? Just a few months after he died. So he died in August, and just a few months after that, there was this uh, reported excess in suicides um, because of hanging. So that's why we take things like uh, celebrity suicides very seriously. Uh, stemming the crisis of suicides, as you said, or the, the tide, the rising tide of suicides, will require uh, multiple efforts um, addressing multiple populations in multiple settings, but uh, celebrity suicides and, and making sure that we report about that as reasonably as possible and try to prevent contagion is definitely a part of our, eff- of our na- national efforts to prevent suicides more broadly. And, and could you add any texture to, I, I, I mentioned that the rates are going up. Can you give a, a little more uh, context on the extent to which they're going up? Are they still going up? I mean, how bad is this crisis? So we've seen a, around a 30% increase in suicides in, since 1999, uh, as you said, in all states and all age groups. Some of the most concerning, actually, that we see are among youth. So we're really concerned about... Um, 10 to 14-year-old girls, we've seen nearly 200% increase in their suicide rates over time. Uh, We're also worried about the rising suicide rate among African-American youth under the age of 13 is another group that we're really concerned about, that we're seeing an excess in suicides of them compared to their white counterparts. Mm. Um, And women in general, middle-aged women, is another group that we're really concerned about. We're concerned about all groups. Uh, the suicide rate, as you said, is rising in all groups. But the degree of, of increase is much greater for those groups than it is for, for the country as a whole. And, and when we see things like a doubling of a rate like we did in, for 10 to 14-year-old girls, that's obviously uh, a real cause for concern. Michelle, let me turn to you. Rajiv mentioned that the role of media in this situation can be pretty clear. Uh, Have you looked at uh, guidelines for how the media 
cover suicides and, and how they might do it differently? So we know that media coverage has a propensity to increase the risk of suicides and that this risk is worse when the media coverage is sensationalized or glamorized or provides too many details. So there have been a couple different groups that have put forth reporting guidelines. These are expert consensus-driven guidelines that provide a list of do's and don'ts for journalists reporting on suicides. For example, you are supposed to use the opportunity to educate the public about suicide, that it's a complex issue, um, not usually attributed to one specific event. Um, You're supposed to highlight the negative impact on relatives and friends and mention that it's preventable and where you can get help. You're not supposed to provide lots of detail on the method or location of the suicide to use sensationalized headlines or to use terms such as victim or commit. Can you break, break, break a little bit of that down a bit? I mean, when you say not too much detail, what, what are you getting at? So, for example, there was a suicide by Kate Spade recently, and some of the articles that came out gave a lot of detail on exactly how she uh, died by suicide. She used a red scarf on a door handle. And then if you look at the Google search term trends, Immediately following that event, the the search term red scarf spiked over more than doubled in the two days following that event. So there, if you are providing too much information in the article, um, it really it captures people's attention in a way that can be detrimental. That goes so counter to what journalists are taught and what journalists also know is likely to attract reader or viewer attention, which is... The more detail, the better. Is this just an inconsistency of, uh, of objectives that we can't reconcile? Rajiv, do you want to? Sure, yeah. I, I think that you've hit uh, the nail on the head and why, why this is so challenging. Um, so Michelle can talk about a study that, that we did together that she was the lead author on, but um, about the trends and how we're doing with respect to these guidelines. But it kind of speaks to an issue that we have a media culture right now where it's the the pace at which we're expecting news to hit the the media the websites um mainstream media blogs you know the pace at which that's occurring and the need for the attention um is is really to use some of these things that are counterintuitive. So it is kind of from a media perspective, balancing their responsibility and recognizing that there is this element of contagion that they should be aware of, but also, you know, their own uh, objective, which is to produce the news and to do it in a way that's timely and that that makes sense. You know, we, we, we have to be realistic with what's expected of them. Um, but Michelle can talk about how we're doing generally with respect to these guidelines. Yeah, please, Michelle. So Rajiv is referencing an article that we published just a short while ago. We evaluated an intervention put on by the state of California. So they had a series of educational events for journalists in their state, webinars, et cetera, where they passed out the recommendations and tried to encourage journalists to think more deeply about how they are reporting on suicide. Um, we looked at pre- and post um, articles reporting on suicide within California and also compared it to a national control group, including large publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, etc. Um, and we found actually that the intervention did not have a significant impact on journalists' adherence to the media reporting recommendations. Um, however, the overall trend in the national realm was also decreasing. So journals were becoming less likely to adhere to the guidelines. 
So this intervention wasn't particularly successful in California, but California is also following a national trend that we're seeing across the board. And as Rajiv mentioned, that could be related to the 24 news news cycle and the competitive industry to get uh, eyeballs on news articles. Sarah, do you see any way in which uh, the celebrity stature and the the way that media are engaging with them might be helpful? Yeah, I think there's... um there's opportunities for growth here, right? And that uh, there is so much attention to celebrities. And so in many ways, they can create a platform and open up discussions that previously um, many people wouldn't approach. So let's just take one example of Mariah Carey. And, you know, she's been a, an icon in uh, American pop culture for decades at this point. And she recently came forth to talk about her history with uh, mental illness. And in many ways, it's really complicated to talk about mental illness, period. It can be be even more challenging and problematic in certain communities of color and especially among women who in many ways are supposed to be the the strong core of the family and really caring for everyone, um, making it even more difficult to talk about challenges that they face in, in dealing with mental illness. So her coming forward and really talking about that on a, on a global stage um, could provide an opportunity for people at home to talk about things in a way that maybe otherwise they wouldn't have. So I think that's the potential flip side of this. And there's, there's actually a, a term being used. It's called edutainment, right? And it's really just the, the crossover of this... Um, pop culture that that is increasingly present and how there are opportunities for education and learning, um, raising awareness in a way that um, may not be available in other avenues or, or certainly not hit the same size of um, of people that are willing to listen and and maybe you know consider things such as okay what is what does mental illness look like what you know what are the the signs that I need to be yeah, what do you want them to say what what are the messages that you want to hear from a celebrity what should they be raising what level of detail should they go to should they just be telling you uh, to call a hotline or to talk to a friend I mean what what do you want to hear from them I think the first step is is them just being honest about um, the illnesses that they're facing I think for a long time um, very much part of being a public image is is being perfect is not having any problems um, and instead making it really real that these are these are issues that we face regardless of um, our level of wealth education um, you know skill on the stage etc cetera, etc cetera. I think the the other thing is really just encouraging people to seek help and that can look a lot of different ways right it can be um, as simple as calling a, a hotline it can be um, as uh, you know, actually seeking care with a different provider. Of course, that can be complicated depending on, you know, whether or not you have insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think really encouraging uh, people to, to, to talk about these different illnesses and then um, really making sure that they seek care. I think that's that's an important next step. When we spoke earlier, you mentioned that Courtney Love had had a sort of a different approach as a celebrity when her partner, Kurt Cobain, committed his suicide. Maybe could you describe how Courtney addressed this and say whether this is like yeah. model well, behavior? Yeah, so, um, I guess it's 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 two part, right? Basically, what happened um, is in 1994. That's when Kurt Cobain um, died by suicide, and obviously, given the the following that he ha- had as a as a major um, singer at the time, um, I think many were expecting uh, Courtney Love to really glamorize his life and who he was and all that he did and all that he had accomplished. Um, he was just 27 at the time. And um, I think what Courtney Love did 
that was very different at the time and in many ways continues to be different is she um, really talked about his struggles with addiction and how angry she was at the fact that he ultimately was leaving her as a single mom with a young daughter and in many ways talked about a lot of really ugly and complicated feelings rather than just, you know, sweeping them under the rug and instead, you know, focusing on the legacy of his life. And so I think it's, it's, it's complicated, right, to, to balance both of those things, um, to recognize who people were, and at the same time, to really talk about the, the pain and destruction that can follow in such, um, in such acts when people take their so life. So she took that approach, and did that have, what, what kind of contagion was his suicide followed by, if any? Yeah, this is Rajiv. We didn't see the same level of um, contagion that we did for something like Robin Williams' um, suicide. We didn't. There was no. There was less evidence of of a contagious effect. Is it safe to say that because of the approach that Sarah just described, that maybe Courtney had an, an effect on this? I would hedge that a little bit. I think for two things. One, it's 1994, right? So there wasn't the same access to social media. I think uh, news didn't travel in the same in, in the same pace. There there were also other things that Courtney Love did do for example, she, um, at a vigil, she read parts of his suicide note. So, so it's not that she clearly fell in, you know, one domain of only talking about the, the anger and frustration. But I think that, I think that her doing that really broadened the story rather than just a very narrow depiction and glamorization of who Kurt Cobain was. So I think, you know, as is often the case, when you look closer to the details, it's, it's far more gray. Um, but I think there's several contributing factors um, that would make it more, more challenging to, to give a clear response to your question. Well, that makes me want to know a little more about how we track contagion and whether we are trying to understand this better. Would, would one of you want to take that on? Sure. <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. Um, there was a recent study in, a, in the military that showed suicides in the military tend to cluster within units. That's a really kind of easy place to look at something like contagion because we have set geographic boundaries and it's understood, it's, it's known how to study the cluster. Um, but when we're talking about contagion in general society, it's much harder and social media has made it harder, even harder still. So are we talking about um, clustering within social networks that establish themselves on social media sites? Are we talking about um, within a school? Are we talking about within an organization or a workplace? Um, so it's really hard. The, the other thing that makes it hard is that our surveillance is at a national level um, and it doesn't really boil up until two years after the fact. So, for example, we won't know the impact of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain's suicides and contagion after those for another two years, perhaps, when we start looking at the data, when it becomes available. Mm. For workplaces, schools, it's unclear whether they're tracking this in a way that they can make sense of it, um, you know, down the road, and whether anyone's just noting, you know, whether they're especially for large organizations, uh, large universities, the University of California school university system, you know, if they're tracking it to see at what point is this elevating beyond what is, would be expected or what would be normal. I suppose uh, I'd also like to know more about then where your research time and effort is headed. I mean, Tell us about the work at RAND, and Rajiv in particular, perhaps. But Sarah and Michelle, let us know what you're focused on, where you, where you want to go. 
But let me say where we've been and how um, this builds onto it. So we've done a lot um, with respect to suicide. We've looked at how systems are approaching suicide prevention within the military, within different law enforcement agencies um, across the United States, in Australia, in Europe. Uh, we've looked at California's effort to prevent suicide. Uh, we've looked at veterans' issues and you know risk of suicide among female veterans. So we have a pretty extensive portfolio on suicide prevention. One of the things that we did that I think is really important for this current discussion is look at the current crisis system infrastructure. So it's basically assumed that there's this um, this this essentially um, safety net of providers who are there and willing to care for people in need. Um, and that's really just not the case. So our crisis... And when you say people in need, what kind of need do you mean? Distress. I would say just broadly speaking, distress okay. that may be suicidal or maybe approaching suicidality. Okay. Um, and so I think that there's this assumption that we have this, this basic infrastructure. Currently, our crisis system, we always have this line, and it's a network of, of organizations that are crisis centers, that are independent crisis centers that exist throughout the United States. Um, they receive maybe $2,000 a year from the federal government to act, serve in this capacity, and the rest of their resources are provided through uh, state or municipal grants or fund funding, private foundation, philanthropy. Um, and so they're the ones who are answering the crisis line calls and responding to crisis line chats and texts. Uh, the issue is that when there is a celebrity suicide, they don't necessarily have the resources to have kind of contingency plans in place. They're not ramping up with their, you know, how many calls lines are available and things like that. So things remain the same. Um, that can potentially, basically, they're not prepared for the surge and that can really um, just... And, when you, and, and the surge... There, there will definitely be a surge, and they're not necessarily there to respond to that excess demand that is faced. So that may mean that more callers are put on holds. That may mean that more calls go unanswered, that it takes longer time for calls to be answered. So we're concerned about that. And so I think looking at the crisis system and what we have for people who you know might need more care or might just need someone to talk to for a little bit of time um, before they kind of... Um, you know, get back to normal, get back to a state where they're feeling okay with themselves. So I think that's one area that I would really like to see the research progressing. I also think looking at uh, different elements of, of school climate, how that might respond to suicides, different populations that might be at risk. It's really, uh, we're really concerned about, for example, LGBTQ youth um, in the United States who may be marginalized and having a difficult time. So there's a lot of different groups that we need to do better surveillance on, think about prevention for those groups, and evaluate the prevention strategies that are in place. Before I, I turn to Sarah Michelle, one key point you made there is that there's a presumption that this architecture exists, this suicide prevention architecture. And so it sounds like you would like to disabuse people of that notion. There is an architecture, but it's not as robust as people might assume. I think that that's right. Um, and actually, there was just legislation that passed the House Monday 
Monday that it's the National Crisis Line, Suicide Crisis Line Improvement Act or something like that. And it would make, make it easier to access the Suicide Prevention Crisis Line. Hopefully, because of this legislation, it will improve the underlying infrastructure um, that, that exists. But, um, and I don't mean, uh, the infrastructure that exists is great that there are these organizations that are willing to take these calls. Um, but I don't think that, I think that we have to realize how these places are funded, what their support is. And if we really continue to rely on them, um, that I think they really need a boost in their, their capacity and their resources so that they can respond to surges, so that they can answer all calls, so that fewer calls get put on hold, things of that nature. Uh, Sarah, how about you? What are you focused on here? Well, I think taking it back to, um, you know, looking at the cross-section of... Um, education and, and pop culture, I think that, uh, you know, Michelle referenced looking at an intervention that unfortunately they found didn't work. And so that, that of course, then leads to, so what does work? And, you know, one of the shows that has also received a ton of attention is the 13 Reasons Why. Um, it was on Netflix and got a ton of, um, just raised a lot of questions in terms of teen suicide and a lot of critique from mental health experts in terms of um, really not giving sufficient information. And so Netflix then turned around in preparation for season two and is really taking a multi-tiered approach in terms of um, having additional uh, hotlines available, having um, an informational PSA um, with the with the actors and different mental health experts. Um, and so really uh, applying our research skills to evaluate things like that and say, okay, you know, things are, are quickly changing in the current landscape um, of Instagram, Netflix, uh, Twitter, all of these different things. So how can we adapt our research tools and make sure that um, we're evaluating these efforts to understand if, in fact, they're um, effective and make sure we can do more of what works going forward and um, really shift gears from the things that, that don't seem to be um, effective in reducing um, the increasing suicide rates? Uh, very good, Michelle. I do want to qualify this article that we were talking about. While we found that this one particular intervention um, was not successful in improving adherence, it was a very remote-based webinar. Here are the recommendations. Here's why you should adhere to them, etc. We did find, however, that of the sample of articles that we looked at, when they were when they were completely focused on the suicide event itself, they were less adherent to guidelines than when they talked about the topic of suicide more broadly or coupled the topic of suicide with this uh, the event in question. So there, there's an opportunity to improve uh, media adherence to guidelines by look, taking a more nuanced approach and aligning the incentives with what journalists are trained and interested in reporting on. So if you provide a more holistic story, more information on what suicide is and how it happens, how complex it is, where how you can prevent it, etc., you could potentially come up with a better intervention that has a, a more positive result. In my own research, I've been I've stepped away a little bit from from suicide itself and looked more on the prevention side, like Per Rajiv was talking about earlier. And I'm working on a couple projects that are trying to integrate mental health screening and education um, with it in existing social service programs, whether that's job training or youth development or um, domestic violence shelters. So I've I've taken a more preventative approach. Michelle, you've probably read more than the average person in the media about suicides and how it's covered uh, how, how much have you how many articles about suicide have you read 
And are you okay? Uh, and what what takeaways do you have? Yeah. So um, in the course of this research, we were coding newspaper articles, and we included about two thousand articles in the overall evaluation. I read about half of those. So you really learn. I mean, at the time I was living in sunny Southern California, so you just had to take walks around the block and go look at the beach <laughs> in between reading all these intense articles. But you know, it's it's while were these just California articles or were these national? Both, both. So both California, where the intervention took place, and the comparison group internationally. You know, you learn a lot about self care and taking a break when you need it uh, when you're working in an area like this, but. Um, also, the scoring mechanism that we used is very numeric-based. They did or did not adhere to each of these individual guidelines, for example. But when you're reading the article in a more qualitative perspective, you can see the nuances of of what is counts as sensational versus not. And so you have side, you have headlines that say like "death packed," da da da. This person took these pills, whatever. And you're like, okay, this is ridiculous. No one really should be reporting like this. But then you see other articles that are more nuanced and, you know, journalists want to be able to report on the details because that's their job and that's, you know, how they get ahead in their own career and how they share information with um, the greater population. But um, when coupled with an understanding of or sharing an understanding of the negative impact on friends and relatives, for example, like Courtney Love, right, when she was really upset and it was clear to everybody that the negative impact of suicide on your social network around you, focusing on a little bit of the, the more of those details and providing a more nuanced context really changes the entire um, vibe of the article, regardless of whether they're specifically adhering, checking off boxes on the guidelines themselves. Did you ever feel compelled or did you like reach out to a journalist and either to chide them for going into some kind of awful detail or or to compliment them on their restraint? I did not. I did not. But it has changed my the way that I read the news in general in some ways. I, I just that would occur to me as a former journalist and someone who deals with journalists <laughs> a lot. I sometimes just reach out to them to compliment or chide. Rajiv? So I was going to say, I did pitch this when we, when we published it. I did pitch it to some of the journalists that I know that um, cover news, and they were very interested in it, but no one covered the, the article <laughs> itself. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I'd be curious uh, whether any of you have a feeling about... T- could you assign a grade to the media overall for how they are covering this issue? I mean, I think you see hits and... I mean, that would be like, how do researchers cover... You know, there's really good coverage and there's really bad coverage. I think that um, kind of as Michelle was saying, you see this variation and um, is it getting better or worse? Can you say that? It's getting worse on average. Mm, um, that's okay. what we found. Um, we have two crises. Well, it's getting, but I mean, at the same time, you know, we have, so we have to think about how to communicate in a, in a more positive way. Um, really kind of promote these guidelines, really um, get the media on board that in covering this, you know, they, they play a role as well, um, making sure that they understand the role that they play and the responsibilities that come with it. Um, but I think it goes for all of us. It goes for how we talk about it in a research domain. I think it goes how we talk about it at the dinner table and things of that nature, that um, if we want to start talking about suicide, and I believe that we should, given kind of the current trends, that it needs to, you know, come to the fore forefront. Uh, we need to be talking about it in a way that's realistic, that's not sensationalizing. Um, 
I was just talking to actually a reporter yesterday and we were talking about the notion that there's been so such an elevation of the issue of veteran suicide that it may have had a it may have potentially, we don't have any data to prove this, have a detrimental effect to the extent that everyone associates veterans with suicide. Um, not necessarily recruiting, it's just, you know, so how does that impact a veteran who wants to get a job? Does, do people think that they're, all veterans are suicidal? Mm. We're still talking about a very rare thing. Um, it's, how does it's the rate in, of suicide compare in military to civilian? So it's a complicated question. Um, the, the rate of suicide in the United States is around 12 per 100,000. Um, the suicide rate in the military right now is around 18 or 20 per 100,000. But that said, there are really big differences that could account for some of that disparity. And one of the biggest is gender composition. So females have a much lower rate of suicide than males. Uh, males are around four times more likely to kill themselves in the United States than females. Um, and the and the military is disproportionately, overwhelmingly male. So once you kind of account for the fact that you have a lot more men in the military... Yeah, uh, they're typically younger men. Younger men, is right. And the relationship between age and suicide is a little bit more complicated. It increases during adolescence. Then it plateaus, and it goes through some curves. And then for men, as they hit older ages, it kind of spikes. It goes much higher. And for women, it actually shows the opposite effect. It goes much lower. Hmm. So... Um, so it's it's variable. So at the, that said, though, when you account for the disproportion the disproportionate number of men, men in the military, the suicide rates are somewhat comparable between the two groups. Maybe a little bit more elevated for the military population, at least historically. So just a little bit more about the crisis that we have here. What do you think may be the driving factors to this rise? I mean, how much do we lay on the media, I guess is what I'm getting at. Are there other factors that we can use to excuse the media to a certain extent? I mean, of course. I think kind of as, as we think that there has there needs a multi-pronged um, solution, the causes are probably also multi-pronged. Um, I reviewed an article that just came out on Monday that shows uh, that there's an association in a pretty convincing way between temperature rises and suicide rates over time since the 60s. And that's pretty interesting. So maybe temperature, climate change plays a little bit of a role. Uh, macroeconomic conditions may play a role. Uh, the availability or closing of mental health facilities may play a role. The availability um, of firearms and the way that they're stored may play a role. Um, this is all U.S.? This is all I'm talking about is U.S.-based okay. kind of potential explanations. Uh-huh. These have all been... Uh, the rising rates of inequality might play a role. Um, all of these things, I think, are, are probably contributing. They may even be interrelated to each other. So, But I think your notion that what is what is a rising suicide rate in the United States tell us about um, the culture of the United States that more people are in distress and more people feel like that's their their solution which is there is no solution. I think that we need to really address that. Uh, there was a, fa- a lot of people, and a lot, it got a lot of attention, um, deaths of despair that showed this increasing mortality rate in the U.S. compared to a lot of other countries. And a lot of it could be attributed to excesses in suicides, in overdoses, and in liver cirrhosis. And I think uh, the CDC just, repres- uh, an article was also just released showing an increase in liver cirrhosis among young men in the United States, uh, which is definitely a, you know, alcohol use is a contributing mm-hmm. factor to that, one of the primary ones. So there is something happening. Um, 
whether you'd like to call it deaths of despair or, or something else, it's, it's indicative of a social condition that I think we need to think about more broadly. That's going to be a long-term solution. In the short term, I think we need to really encourage more people to talk about suicide, to screen for suicide risk, uh, to destigmatize mental health care, as was spoken about earlier, and to think about whether there are ways to, re- to, to ensure that people who are feeling suicidal um, know that there are options and that, you know, very lethal means for impulsive suicide acts are harder for them to get, for, are harder for people to get their hands on. Sarah or Michelle, do you want to weigh in on either the the drivers uh, we've just been discussing or some of these other uh, steps we might take to to deal with this crisis? I mean, I think it's really just to echo a lot of what Rajiv said and to say that this is a, a problem that we consistently face with public health and that um, if you take a simple solution, then you're unlikely to attack the goal at hand. Um, oftentimes, when we're looking at these these challenges, it takes a multi-level approach, and um, it's rarely as simple as delivering, um, you know, a single treatment, right? That you also have to look at these larger structural factors, just like Rajiv was talking about, in terms of the economic situation, the, the access to education, um, and, and a whole range of different factors. And it's, it's a lot more complicated to do that, right? Rather than focus on like one very simple thing, uh, such as media guidelines. Now, it's not to say that that everything that it's done in talking about media guidelines also needs to address all of these other factors. Um, but instead, I think it's recognizing the range of factors that does that that are contributing to um, the increasing rate of suicide, and then figure out who's best positioned to to tackle you know which component of the problem. But unless we acknowledge the complexity of it, any any solution. Any any intervention that we come up with to try and address it, I think is is likely to fall short of its stated goal. Thanks. Uh, Michelle? Yeah, and I think um, part of it, too, is just cultural. And so some of the guidelines are focused on not normalizing suicide, you know, really highlighting that it is preventable. And this isn't like a very regular result of um, having a mental health issue. But on the on the flip side, you do almost want to normalize uh, mental health prevention. So you want to normalize the fact that this is an illness. People struggle th- at different points in their life. They also seek help, and there are healthy ways of dealing with this. And so, really focusing on destigmatizing what a lot of people think of as a weakness or you know something that they need to hide from their friends and family and coworkers is really also a step in the right direction. Yeah. We're at the end of our time. So thanks, Rajiv, Sarah, Michelle, for your time and insights. Thanks to our Policy Circle and Rand Next members and friends for joining us on this call. If you would like more information on Rand research about mental illness and suicide prevention or to listen to a podcast of this call, you know where to go, rand.org. That's our website. You can also contact us directly at policy underscore circle at rand.org. This concludes our call. Thanks for participating and have a great day. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.